People usually only plan for failure, but it's important to plan for success too, to say, what are we going to do when we have X dollars in the bank or when we have this many customers or this much revenue? Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Bay Street Bull, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from one another, the question remains the same. What's your mission? If you own a business or you know someone that does, there's a good chance that it's also a family-run business. From the coffee shop on the corner to the real estate agent that your friend keeps on referring you to, family businesses are everywhere and have a significant impact on our economy. According to a 2019 study conducted by the Family Enterprise Exchange Foundation and the Conference Board of Canada, research found that family enterprises account for 63% of all private sector firms in Canada and generate 47% of private sector employment. According to the same study, they also account for about 90% of the jobs generated by small and medium-sized companies, which are often described as the backbone of our economy. With those numbers in mind, it's clear that family businesses have a direct impact on the success of Canada's economy. But running a family business can be a complicated matter, especially when the line between personal and professional boundaries is so easily blurred. Like, What if your dad brings up the next marketing campaign over dinner or a sibling quarrel extends into the boardroom? Super awkward. Entrepreneur Manjeet Minhas can certainly speak to the nuances of running a family business. At 19, the Dragon's Den investor started her first company in the booze business with her brother Ravinder, piggybacking off of their experiences working in their father's OK liquor store growing up. Today, that company they started, Minhas Brewery, Distillery and Winery, has grown into a global empire with annual revenues in excess of $220 million, all built on the sale of a purple RAV4 that was sold for $10,000 to start the business. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Manjeet about how she built her global empire, the importance of giving back to your community, and what advice she has to offer when it comes to working with your family. Hi, Manjeet. How are you today? I'm good. It's so nice to be chatting with you. We've exchanged a few emails back and forth, and it's kind of been a weird time during COVID. But I'm so glad that we could be having a a chat today talking about your business journey and everything that you've been up to lately. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat. Of course. So I read in an interview that one of your business mantras is to be ready for opportunities and have the courage to say yes. So why do you think it takes courage to say yes? Why don't we start there? I do think saying yes definitely takes courage. And and to be honest, so does saying no a lot of times when you are in that building phase because you want to take all the opportunities that you can, but you need to learn how to focus on what your vision is and what you are building. But the courage to say yes, I really do believe that everybody has to have courage. And and courage doesn't mean that we don't get scared. Trust me, I get scared too all the time. But it's that we work through the fear and that we use that fear to drive us. We use courage in order to get uncomfortable and to learn something new and to push through it and to know that it's not always going to work and we're always not going to be great at something, but we're going to try our best. And growing up, that's really what I was taught was just to always put your best foot forward. 
And um, I do think that we all need to have more courage. And lots of people don't like to use that word, but I do believe that they should because not only is it a confidence booster, but in fact, it is the definition of what many of us are doing every day. Especially now too. Going back to when you were growing up, let's talk about your journey as an entrepreneur. How do you think you learned to be an entrepreneur? What was your first you know, memory of seeing entrepreneurship in action for you? My first memory, I guess, was when my dad was laid off from the oil patch here in Calgary, and he was forced to become an entrepreneur because there was no jobs in the oil and gas sector and the downturn in the early 90s. And that's all he knew. That's all he had done since graduating the UFC. And so the mortgage still had to be paid and food had to be put on the table. And so my dad became an entrepreneur and my mom also, and they opened up retail liquor stores because it was privatized here in Alberta. So I was 13 at that time. And all I knew then was this family business called liquor stores. And I worked there whether I wanted to or not. And I very quickly became a fly on the wall learning all the decisions that my dad had to make. And it really gave me a strong work ethic also because I was there and I was stocking shelves and I was having competitions with my brother in order to make it fun. Who could sell the most number of X bottles? We would pick a you know bottle on a Friday and a, and a Saturday and try to sell the most and even though we were kind of underage. But regardless, we looked older than we were. But we we made selling fun and we learned everything you could imagine about what we were selling. And I think that that has really carried through to my career the last 20 years as an entrepreneur myself, because uh, I am definitely one who is really researched and really prepared. And some will say over-prepared, but I never want to be caught off guard when I was starting out because I was definitely the underdog and in many cases still am, even though they were the ninth largest brewery. Yeah, I think that's always, you know, something that is so great for people who grow up with parents that have a family business. And it almost ends up being like a training ground for cultivating those skills that are so critical to uh, entrepreneurship. So you started your business with your brother Ravinder. Can you tell me a little bit about how you both grew your business into what it is today? I was 19, finishing up my first year of engineering at the U of C. He was uh, just graduating grade 12. And we thought that there was a niche that was missing for the ripe taking in the marketplace here in Alberta and discovered very shortly across the country, which was good quality, premium quality spirits at a low everyday fair price. And not only did we think the price of beer and vodka was too much as engineering students, but we also felt understanding what was in the marketplace for my parents' retail business, that there really wasn't a lot available if you were not looking at the brand. If you're looking what was in the bottle, there was not a lot available that you would actually be proud of drinking. And so we created a line of spirits And then very shortly after, with Brewmasters in hand, uh, beers. And Mountain Crest was our first beer in 2002. And we wanted better bang for your buck, the Canadian way. So a little bit stronger alcohol, but we wanted it to be a buck of beer. And that was unheard of. The cheapest beer was about 10 bucks a six pack in Alberta at the time. And so we decided not to tackle the major cities because they were a little more brand conscious than the rural areas. And we started selling, started tasting, started talking about what was in our product. And we very quickly got a really great rural following and a following in bars and restaurants for bar stock because people weren't asking for the brand. They were asking for 
a rum and Coke. And well, you get rum that is bar stock. And luckily enough, ours was always the best priced and good quality ingredients. And so that's kind of how we broke into the marketplace. And we just kept growing from there, listening to our customers, listening to feedback of what they were looking for. Also doing quick turnarounds when we would see trends or fads, I would call them, coming out into the marketplace. So whether it be, you know, lime beer or watermelon beer or super light and low calorie, which is, you know, kind of changed. Like, so all of those things that happen and happen for a little while, but we have really great R&D teams and we do it all internally. And over the years, we have really vertically integrated to make sure that we can be fastest to market and we can pivot very quickly. So in a lot of ways, we were ready for this pandemic in a variety of different ways, just as a general business model for us, because innovation and pivoting quickly, listening to feedback, not a pandemic, is definitely something that has always put us ahead the last two decades. I mean, that's just an incredible story in the way that you and your family have been able to build something from the ground up and something that started with a, a small family business into what it is today and being a leader in the industry. I think that's just a beautiful story. But I imagine, you know, when especially when you were first starting the, the business, I imagine the beer industry is one that is, you know, very white and male. What was your experience like building your company in the beginning as a woman of color and as someone that maybe not didn't have as much experience on the manufacturing side and the that part of the business? How did you navigate that and what was your experience like? Yeah, funny you say that because somebody very early on told me, oh, you're getting into an industry that's old, male and pale. And I thought, <laughs> Okay, you're real, you're right. And so funny enough, I said to him that, uh, you know what, I seem to have followed that in my career because I did engineering and I could count literally on one hand how many women in, you know, 1998 were in engineering. And so initially didn't, you know, wasn't daunting to me, but very quickly, it definitely was apparent to me that I was the odd woman out and that I was definitely not like the rest of the people in the room in a lot of different cases. First and foremost, we didn't have history in the business. Almost every beer company that had been around up until that point had been around for not only decades, but centuries. And so it wasn't what I imagined in my mind, I guess. But very quickly, I discovered that I wasn't getting any respect and I definitely wasn't going to get a seat at the table to present my products. And so, you know what, I'm going to have to use this to my advantage that I stick out like a sore thumb and not a disadvantage. And so that really did help me build this tough skin in order to take all the criticism and the disrespect that I would get. And so very quickly, I discovered that I am going to have the best presentation. I'm going to be early and I'm going to do all of those things that I too was taught as a kid that matter to make a first impression. I was going to be, you know, the best dressed. I wasn't going to look like I was 20 years old. I was going to have not only background and information on my own products, but the entire industry. And so very quickly, I became, for many buyers and government agencies, a go-to for a wealth of knowledge as to what was happening, what others were doing, what other jurisdictions, not only provinces, but countries were doing with policies and regulations and liquor because you know, that is not static, is very dynamic. And so I became a go-to and a trusted source 
doesn't mean that they were taking my product yet, but that was a way in for me. And I think that everybody has to find their way in. Eventually, you know, we started with one product being listed and we proved that we knew what we were doing and, and it grew from there. So, you know, with that in mind, do you think that there is still a lack of representation for women and people of color in the industry? Are you seeing any changes and any movements happening um, in your experience? Yes, a big gap and definitely still a big lack of representation, not only of women and women of color, but also of men of color and men and women of a certain age, which, you know, basically is anything under the age of 50. It's starting to change, but very slowly. And it is changing in that a lot of the new craft breweries that are coming up across this country and in the United States also are by younger people, you know, in their 30s and and 40s, but it's still far and few between. Definitely the ones that are successful still and the ones that are on the map fit the mold. And, And so it's encouraging to see that there is interest by women, but it's still very, very small and far behind. So my parents operate a business that employs other family members, and I've always admired their ability to navigate that because it's not easy hiring and working with your family. In your experience, what are some of the biggest challenges family businesses face that other businesses don't? You know, how can families best deal with them? What I think is a challenge also, I think, is an advantage. And that is that you spend a lot of time together. And so you know each other really, really well. You know what makes them tick. You know what their weaknesses are. And you know what their strengths are. So it's really about the individuals and the relationship that you can say that I'm going, we're going to focus on what each other's strengths are. But, you know, just like anything, when you spend a lot of time together and you know the ins and outs, it's easy to pick on somebody. It's easy to get on their nerves. It's easy to <laughs> motivate them the wrong way. And so I think just like anything, you do have to be able to have that separation in your mind that is personal and that is business. But also, in you know, we are competitive as family members, let's face it. And when things are going good and when things are not going good, there can be a lot of tension. And I think people only imagine that when things are not going well, that it can be stressful. But the exact same happens when things are going really well. And so I think it's really important to have a vision also of what you will do because people usually only plan for failure. But it's important to plan for success too, to say, what are we going to do when we have X dollars in the bank or when we have this many customers or this much revenue. And so communication for a lot of people is a super challenging force that we deal with in not only our personal lives, but definitely in our business lives. Building on that, how important is role definition and understanding, I guess, chain of command when it comes to certain decisions that need to be made and, you know, who gets the final say when it comes to a certain, you know, conversation or or discussion within the company and within uh, certain parts of the company? Role definition is extremely important. And I think that it's something that also can change. So for my brother and I, we definitely have always had our own roles and what we were good at. 
but also, you know, what interested us to begin with. And so we took those roles on. Now, a couple of years ago, we did a swap of roles just to, you know, get different perspectives on the business, but also just to continually keep momentum and keep interested. That is important as you are in a business and an entrepreneur for a long time. So, you know, a lot of people ask, how do you keep that? And so how you keep that is you do what you're good at, but then you also mix it up and you get uncomfortable and you learn new things and you take on new projects. And so we definitely do that too. But it is very important for stability of the company, for team members, for your executive, for your board to know who is responsible for what. How do you compartmentalize business and you know personal life when you are working with your family? I imagine it's a little bit more complicated than you know like a light switch and turning it on on and off. I'm not very good at not bringing it in. Let's face it, we're human, and as much as we're <laughs> not an office switch, it's always on because as an entrepreneur, you definitely eat, sleep, and breathe your business. That sometimes also in the off hours, unconsciously, where the greatest ideas come from, and so definitely you will see whether it's at a party or on vacation or dinner at my parents, you will see my brother and I talking business. I also think that, you know, we have young kids and I think it's important for them to understand that there's a lot of people relying on us and our business are literally operating 24 seven. Our, our breweries and distilleries, manufacturing plants around the world are running all the time. And so things come up and, and it's really hard to sometimes plan. I'm not to say that we don't, but things come up and so that we have to deal with that we are responsible for. And so it is something that we don't bite our tongue or get angry if something comes up and we discuss it. However, um, we try to be conscious of talking about other things and having other interests and and still, you know, and being social and, and all those other things in order to be well-rounded individuals. Family business isn't just about working with the people that you're related to. In a broader sense, it's also about community. It's about linking arms and being of service to each other when we're in need. If you haven't noticed by now, this is a big theme that has come up on multiple occasions in our podcast. And Manjita is a great example of community service in action. As the COVID-19 pandemic spread in the summer of 2020, she spearheaded the production of much-needed hand sanitizer after a call-out from local health authorities, producing tens of millions of bottles for essential service workers. For her, being an entrepreneur is as much about building a game-changing business as it is about giving back. When we talk about family, there's also this sense of family when we talk about the communities that we live in and our sense of duty to our communities as well. And so, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, obviously, it has been very, very difficult for everyone across the board, especially businesses. But there are, uh, you know, businesses that have taken that as uh, an opportunity to be of service to the community and help out the community in any way that they can. So, you know, I know that you converted your facilities to the production of hand sanitizer this year. How was that decision made? And was it difficult to pivot your production facilities so quickly? You know, what were some of the challenges that came with that? Definitely. When the pandemic hit, we were surprised just like anybody else. We also thought it would last a couple of weeks. And so, you know, we thought, you know, business as usual. Okay. But very quickly, we discovered not the case. We saw a lot of great small distilleries that were making hand sanitizer because there was a big shortage of it. 
But like I said, we really didn't think that there would be a long-term need or such a big need. But a couple days after that, we got a call from a regional health authority and they asked us if we could produce hand sanitizer and in some pretty big volumes and pretty darn quickly. And basic formula, you know, no aloe, no fragrances, no other allergens. And we said, Okay, interesting. We know that as a distillery, you know, we never would have thought, but as a distillery, we've discovered that we do have this advantage and we can make this. And so we said, listen, let us get back to you because this is, you know, a bigger decision than us just saying yes right now. And so we got our teams together, our executive teams and said, okay, this is what the world needs, but this is what we've been asked. What do you think? And hands down, everybody said, yes, we will work and do everything that we can. And so we decided very quickly that we would and that we would pause distillery operations in multiple distilleries in order to make hand sanitizer and make it around the clock. And so what we had to do in order to do that was get formulation approval, get the other ingredients other than alcohol, which were glycerol and hydrogen peroxide. Also ask supply chain to get proper caps, to get labels, and then actually switch our tanks and our lines in order to fill it. But then what we did was in eight days, we worked around the clock. Everybody got involved. And eight days later, we had hand sanitizer running and we had it in multiple sizes. We had all of our approvals. And yeah, we we continued for six months and we were really happy to be able to help our community and and help keep everybody safe, but also just pitch in. There's not many times in a person's career, never mind as an entrepreneur, that you have the ability to really help out those around you and help those in need and have the, in our case, the unique ability to be able to do that. I think that's just incredible what you've all been able to do. I, I was reading somewhere that I think it, you know, it's in the millions in terms of how much uh, hand sanitizer has been donated and sold. So that's just, you know, really, really incredible. So how do you think your entrepreneurial journey really prepared you for the business challenges that came with 2020 with being able to maneuver so quickly and be nimble? How were you primed to handle those challenges that came with this year? First and foremost, it's really important that you don't depend on one part of your business for your complete success that you do understand that there has to be other ways to diversify your portfolio and understanding that how you can use your existing supply chain or manufacturing operations in order to diversify is super important. Not only for your long-term longevity, but also to understand that when you have competitors come into the marketplace, if somebody you know undercuts you, if regulations change, if you're in a regulated business, so lots of things that you don't have control of can happen. So it's it's important that you don't depend on one part of your business for your entire success. As entrepreneurs, we do have to learn how to identify and manage risk. That Since you can't predict what the problems are going to be in the future, you do have to take some steps to prepare yourself that what they are going to be. You need to you know, always be looking at what pain points and failures that could be in your businesses. And they can be ranging, like I say, from regulation and policies. They can be people. They can be system or processes. They can be you know, legal compliance. And so managing risk and identifying it is super important and something that you should do constantly. Just as you do with your goal setting, you have to do that with risk. Also, 
I do think that we all need to listen to our customers and observe their behavior more and and more intently, not just sell them in the ways that we want to sell to them. And so this has been a great time, I think, for most people to discover digital options to sell their products, but also other ways that they can get in front of their customers. And then I really do think that everybody needs to create a favorable environment for innovation, that you do have to always be innovating and stay ahead of the game. And innovation isn't easy, and you definitely fail many times um, before you hit the bullseye. It does have to be built into your culture, into your workplace, and and your team members have to feel comfortable coming up with ideas and innovating. And new ideas can come from everywhere and anywhere. And so it is important to always have a favorable environment for it and a culture of being able to pivot and create. You're a dragon on Dragon's Den. You've obviously spoken with a lot of entrepreneurs and founders with big ideas and the potential to build great ideas. What is the most common mistake that you see in the entrepreneurs that pitched you, whether on the show or not? Oh, goodness. So many people pitched me all the time. <laughs> so there definitely are a couple. One, I would say that they're chasing the money, not the value. So I do think that it's really important for people to understand that they have to create value for a consumer and for their buyers. And then the money will follow. If you create a product or a service that people need and want and that has some value and helps their lives in some way, then and only then will you be able to create a brand and then be able to sell and then, you know, to create a business. So I really do think that people sometimes miss the mark of what they're selling. They, they just want to become millionaires and, or they just want to become entrepreneurs, but they have no idea of what they're actually selling. And they really are not passionate about what they're selling. And that shows. I also would think that too quickly people look for outside investment and they spend more money than they can ever see coming in. And so they're in this debt cycle that they'll never get out of. And they spend a lot more time thinking about finances and money than they ever should. And I really do think that people don't um, realize how much energy that takes. And so I really do think that it's important to have strategic investors and to have smart money, whether that be from, you know, a bank or whether it be from family and friends or from your own savings. But I really do think that people don't think about the dollars and cents and the numbers closely enough. And like you'll hear us say on Dragon's Den, that you don't have to be an accountant or a CA. I am definitely not, but I am good with numbers. And you'll find that every entrepreneur that has been successful is, they understand what's coming in, what's going out, what their you know costs of goods are, what their expenses are, what their EBITDA is. Like what they understand not only their big numbers, but their small numbers, and they have it at their fingertips. Because that's what can make or break a company in the end of the day. You can sell a million widgets, but if you're not making money off of them, you're not going to be around for a while. But also, I think that so many people are trying to please everybody and be everything to everyone and want to be liked. And I think that that can be dangerous too, not only as a person, but as an entrepreneur. And so I really do think that it's important to know that you will be too much and that you won't be everybody's cup of tea. And that's okay. Too many people um, to begin with just think that everybody is their customer. So I think that all of these things come in a business plan. And the first thing I ask people when they want to pitch me is, do you have a business plan? 
And right there and then that tells me whether or not this idea has been really thought out and well-planned. I believe in a plan, knowing full force that it's not going to go according to plan, but it's important to have a plan and revise that plan. Because let's face it, that that is important that you iterate. But you know what? Every plan, it starts somewhere. And so I think that that is, is something that too many entrepreneurs miss, that they develop all the ideas in their mind, but they don't put pen to paper. And that's where I see a lot of the the gap because a lot of times that they can see their own gaps when they put pen to paper and and just come up with a business plan where they haven't thought of a lot of the uh, the aspects of running a business themselves. Right, looking at being able to identify those blind spots, and I also think it's very true. You know, even from the media standpoint, on my end. When we get a lot of pitches for coverage, one thing that I notice, um, you know, is that when you try to make everyone happy, you end up making no one happy because you're trying to just appeal to everyone. And then you lose your point of view and your perspective on things and what you're able to uniquely offer um, people in the marketplace or people as a, as a company and as a voice and, you know, as a leader or something. So I do think it's so true that not trying to do everything is really important and just being good at, you know, a few things, you know, being the best at that. I think that's super important to have that that laser focus. So last question here, what would you say at the end of the day is your mission? What guides the decision making process from, you know, the daily decisions that you make to the big decisions? That's a tough one, not because I don't know, but because there's some things I'm not willing to share. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a pretty open person when it comes to my opinions, my business. And I always joke that, well, that's because <laughs> nobody can fire me for my opinions. And so I think that it also is a lot easier of a life to live when you are true to who you are and what your thoughts are and understanding that you can be wrong and that's okay. But there are some things that I keep to myself because they're still a work in progress and, or I feel they're my competitive edge or I do feel that they are my weaknesses. And just like anybody else, I'm working on them. I'm a very focused individual still. I would say that the pandemic has definitely mixed things up for me a bit. I have had some time back in my life without traveling. And also I've taken on some new responsibilities and some new philanthropic causes that I have more time for, but have just really spoke to me because I'm, you know, around my kids more and, and trying to um, open the world up to them a little bit more and to see what the realities are around us. But it it is an interesting time also in my life, I guess, but I'm taking on new challenges. Um, you know, I started a podcast that I've been thinking about for a very long time. Yeah, I was listening to that earlier. Oh, thanks. And the reason I wanted to do that was because, uh, you know, somebody told me a while ago and about a year and a half ago while I was waiting to go on stage in in Philadelphia, actually. And and he said to me, somebody told him, and he's trying to implement that in his life more, is that you don't learn anything from listening to yourself talk. And I thought to myself, very true. I'm going to be more conscious about listening more than talking more. And so when the pandemic hit, I discovered I had more time on my hands so I could actually tap on the shoulders of friends and business leaders and CEOs in this country that I too wanted to learn from. And I think that listeners could, you know, learn from their failures and, and pick their brains a bit. And so kind of on that path of, you know, doing something new and getting a little uncomfortable and biting my lip and listening more than I'm talking. And so I think that it's really important to continually accept new challenges 
and get uncomfortable and learn. And you learn in so many new ways. I've definitely always been a big reader and reading current events as in newspapers. I read two newspapers since I was 17 years old before my day starts and I still do. But I read a lot of, you know, books now and whether it be memoirs or individuals' journeys. But I do believe that the pace of learning now has to be even faster, whether it be with technology, whether it be, you know, competitors in, in your industry or what others um, around you are just thinking or doing, because the world is changing at a really remarkable pace. And so it is, I think, something that we that all of us as individuals have to keep a pulse on for ourselves to say, okay, what drives me? What are my intentions? And what is my purpose? And I think that is something that we're always evolving to. But I do feel that I have discovered in the last year more and more what my purpose in life is. Well, on that note, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate it. It's been very illuminating. I've learned a lot about you and learned from you as well. So thank you so much for the chat. It's been wonderful. Thank you for having me. And I guess my last thought would be to everybody listening is uh, be brave. And it's important to be brave, to learn um, to suck at something new. And that has been my motto the last 10 months of the pandemic. I have uh, learned I suck at a lot of things from baking to cooking to, you know, back <laughs> to a lot of things, but doesn't mean that I've given up. And I think that it's, that it's important that we all be brave in a lot of different ways. I think many of us are learning new careers or starting new paths also right now because the, our lives are changing and it's a good time to be brave. Yeah, absolutely. The benefit of running a family company is the ability to grow a business with people that you're close with, sometimes ones that know you better than yourself. They're the ones that, in most instances, you could trust with your life. But it's clear that that comes with its own hurdles as well. As Manji puts it, what is sometimes a challenge can also be an opportunity, an advantage to give you the upper hand. It takes clear communication, patience, and most importantly, the willingness to just move forward once decisions are made. It's clear that family businesses are incredibly important to the economy, and we need to do more to support and cultivate them. Which ones are you supporting? On the next episode of Mission Critical, we've got two guests. We'll be speaking with business mogul and Thrive Global CEO, Ariana Huffington and Nabila Ixtabalan. Executive Vice President of People and Corporate Affairs at Walmart Canada about manifesting wellness and tackling burnout in the workplace. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the word out. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?